The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Pray with me. Father, so grateful that you, uh, you came. God, you could have left us to our own uh, state, but instead you were intentional in your love and your grace. Uh, You humbled yourself uh, by becoming like us, that we would be with you. And so I pray today, God, uh, that you would be honored, that you would be made much of. Uh, Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be welcomed in this place, that you would find us as your people to be uh, submissive uh, to your will, that we would uh, be grieved uh, by sin and broken by what breaks your heart, God, and that we would be passionate and motivated by your word uh, for your purposes of uh, loving other people, God, of bringing people uh, into a saving relationship with you, of seeing relationships that are broken be mended and healed, reconciliation, uh, and that your word, God, that would bring clarity uh, to us today, that we would uh, look more like Jesus, act more like Jesus because of hearing your word and honoring and submitting to your word today. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We are continuing on in the book of Esther today, and so we are in uh, probably the highlight of the book, chapter 4. Chapter 4 is kind of the pinnacle uh, of the book of Esther. It's kind of where everything turns. And so uh, just to recap, the book of Esther is really about a story of rescue from the most unlikely of places, right? It's a Disney story, except a little shadier. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, because we've got this orphan girl, this orphan Jewish girl, you know, living in the Persian Empire, and uh, she's being taken care of by her cousin Mordecai, who's older, looking out for her. And it's kind of this rags-to-riches story. Um, you know, she, uh, the, the king, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he, uh, he boots his queen out because she won't be a sex toy for him. She won't be an idol for him, you know, come and flaunt all of her stuff in front of everybody. And so he's like, I want a queen that's going to do whatever I say. So he kicks Vashti off, and they do, you know, Persian idol style and uh, hold this beauty pageant for all the young, beautiful virgins coming. We see that uh, Esther was apparently extremely good-looking. You know, she had the face and the body. She had all of it. And so uh, the king was, you know, was very impressed and made her queen. And uh, so we've seen that he's made her queen, but Esther has hidden her identity, right? She hasn't, she's kept it a secret that she's Jewish. She has kind of violated the dietary law. She hasn't really made much of a big deal about uh, anything to do with God. And it's got her along, you know? I mean, nobody knows. And so it's gone, gone so far, gone well with her. And, uh, and then we see that, you know, Haman comes on the scene, this ancient enemy of the Jews. You know, he is an, uh, an Agagite. And there's, you know, we talked about how there's this ancient, you know, battle between Israel and the Agagites. And, uh, and so Haman is promoted to second command. And it's a very tenuous position. You know, he's very boastful. And Mordecai, Esther's cousin, refuses to bow down. He refuses to bow down to Haman, and so Haman gets furious, and he says, not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to kill all your people, you know, and so I'm going to, I'm going to wipe out, I'm going to commit genocide, I'm going to kill everybody, and, uh, and so he goes, and he, you know, butters up the king, and the king says, sure, sounds like a great idea, let's just commit genocide, and, uh, and they, they end, you know, ended chapter three with them kind of having this drinking party, you know, celebrating while the whole city of Susa, the capital, is in chaos, you know, because it wasn't like he was just sending an army out. He was saying, listen, go kill your neighbors. And so the whole city is just in, in massive chaos. And so 
We pick up in, in chapter four, um, but as always, I want to point out the five kind of broad themes that we're going to see throughout the book of Esther that we are going to see every single time. Um, first, the book of Esther is all about God's silence, right? His name's not mentioned, no mention of miracles or prayer or anything like this. And so it's a book that validates the experience that we have that sometimes we ask, where's God? Sometimes it feels like, man, I, I can't see you, God. Where are you at? And it feels as if he's absent. And the book of Esther is, I think, a really important part of the Bible because it validates and encourages us that, listen, there are times where God's people are going to experience it. But on the other hand, though God's name isn't mentioned, his activity is everywhere throughout the book. And so it says, if you have eyes to see, you will see God's activity everywhere. And so God is active. You see all these reversals, all these changes, um, all these ironies and coincidences all throughout. And so God's activity is present in every aspect of the book. And so it is with our lives. Even if we don't see it, God is behind the scenes working in everything, even the mundane, even the ordinary, right? You wouldn't look at this book and say, well, man, God was really working in, you know, King Ahasuerus getting drunk. Like, man, if I've ever seen a work of God, it's that. I mean, you wouldn't see things like that, but God is behind the scenes working all of these things together for his plan. The third thing we see is that God uses broken people, right? I mean, Esther compromised in lots of ways, and God still works with us, even in our compromises, even in our brokenness. He's a God of grace. We see God's, got, God's heart of rescue. God is, is a God that loves his people even when we are faithless, even when we betray him. He loves us, and he is set and determined to rescue us. And the book of Esther is, at its base, a heart, God's heart of rescue for his people. Because even, the, even the, the Jews that remain in the Persian Empire, they could have fled. They could have gone back to Israel, but they stayed. And God says, even though you didn't go back, I still love you, and I still am going to rescue you. And then the last thing is that um, God's people know how to party. They know how to celebrate, right? That's the whole idea of Purim, you know, is that I... Uh, I have a really good friend that's Jewish, and so we were talking yesterday, and he was sharing with me, you know, like, that it's, it's the Jewish, you know, holiday. They kind of celebrate, like, Halloween, he told me. And so, but what this, the book talks about at the end is that it, it's a point of celebration of God's rescue. And so, if anything, we are a people of celebration because everything that we've been through, ultimately, we know that we have been rescued. We have been redeemed. The, the story's good. It ends good, right? I mean, we know how the story ends. And so, that tends everything that we go through, that we're a people of rescue, so, so with that, let's go ahead and let's dive in. We're going to be in Esther chapter four. And so how we're going to do this is I'm going to read it through and then um, we're going to kind of read it and break it down. And we're going to kind of comment on different passages as we go throughout. So Esther chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whether, uh, wherever the king's, king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him in the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. 
Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and, his fa- uh, and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, or three days, night or day, I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's word. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to read uh, pieces of this again, and we're going to stop, and we're going to break, break it down. We're going to comment and talk about what in the world it means. So, uh, verse one, it says, when Mordecai learned, that, uh, learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So how did this situation happen, right? And we know that what happened originally is that Haman becomes second in command and he comes out and he's flaunting his stuff, right? Everybody else in the kingdom is bowing down to Haman and Mordecai says, no, I refuse. And it's not just like one time, it's day after day after day. And so Mordecai refuses to bow the knee. And so Haman gets mad and he says, listen, I'm done with you. I'm done with all y'all. And so he says, I'm going to kill the Jews. And when Mordecai hears this news, this issue that has been decreed, he mourns. He mourns, it breaks his heart, right? And what has happened? It says that he rips his clothes. So, I mean, you know, I guess those clothes are gone. So he rips his clothes and then he puts on sackcloth and, and ashes, and he, and he mourns. And what that, what's that? He's, he's saying, listen, I'm not afraid to be identified with the Jews, but my mourning, it's not just this private thing. My sadness, it's not just like, well, I'm gonna go in my house and have my pity party over here and then I'll put on a happy face for everybody else, right? I mean, who he is and what's going on inside, that's what's going on the outside. He displays what's really affecting him, what's really going on in his heart. And not only this, but we see how bitter this must have been because when was this issue decreed? It was, it was decreed right before Passover. Right? I mean, the issue that says all the Jews are gonna die happens the day before Passover. And what is Passover? Remember, Passover is God's promise. It's his declaration that he delivered his people from Egypt. Right? It's, it's when the Jews were set free from their slavery to Egypt through the Red Sea, and they remember that. And so how ironic is it that before they remember God's deliverance, there's an issue decreeing their destruction. And so he is, he is broken, he mourns, and it says in sackcloth, in ashes. And what in the world does that mean, 
right? I mean, because the Bible talks about this a lot. And if we don't know what this means, we just kind of glaze over it like, eh, they're doing something funky. Keep going. You know, and, and, and so sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was this really irritable, uncomfortable goat skin that was like black. And so they would wear it and it wasn't fun, you know? And so they would wear it, be itchy, be irritable. And, uh, and then ashes, they would rub off. And ashes was this external declaration of destruction and ruin, right? Of that they were, they were putting on, what are ashes? But the leftover remains of something that has been destroyed, and so they're rubbing that on their body to demonstrate this is what I this is what's going on inside me this is what is happening uh, inwardly and I'm exp- I'm ex- you know dis- displaying that externally. Now why do why in the world do I stop here, right? I mean this is kind of like you know I stop here because I think that a lot of us as Christians we need to we need to be okay with mourning and grieving. Is that sometimes in the Christian world we put on a happy face when we're in front of other people? And we won't actually be real where, where we're at. And you see that he says it's actually important, it's actually a vital thing of healing when we are true and transparent and honest. Then when we're actually broken on the inside, we don't just go and put on a happy face. Now that doesn't mean, listen, I'm inviting everybody in my business. You know, that everybody in the world needs to know every time there's a single bad thing. But it means that there are times where it's, it's okay to mourn. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to grieve. And some, some, some of you guys need permission for that. That there's some things in your life that God wants you to grieve over. He wants you to mourn. And you, because you're afraid of what other people will say or how they'll look at you, you have suppressed it and you've hidden it and you have not allowed yourself to really mourn and grieve and heal. And God wants you to heal. It's an important part of that process that we need to be able to be transparent and be where we're at to heal, to mourn. So, continuing on. It says, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So, Mordecai, he's mourning. He goes throughout the city. He's put on sackcloth and ashes, and he gets to the king's gate. Now, the king's gate isn't like this big just gate that's sitting there. You know, what the king's gate is, it is the inner city. It's the high place in the bigger city, right? So Susa is this very large city and the king's gate is kind of this, this higher up city. It would have been up a little bit and it was the place set apart for the officials, set apart for business. It was the, the, the palace area. It was where all of the administration, everybody kind of lived in the king's gate in this area. And so Mordecai worked there. I mean, Mordecai had gone to the king's gate. He did business in this area, we learned earlier. And so he comes up here in his sad state and, uh, and the king's guards are like, sorry, you can't really come in here. You're going to be a buzzkill. Not, not really good for the king. He doesn't want that sad stuff around here. You know, and so you, you see the, the distance between those in these high places between, and the reality of what's really going on in the city and, and in the people. I mean, we noticed it in, in the chapter before, right? I mean, the city is in chaos. People are broken. And the king is, you know, kicking his feet up, having a drink, celebrating genocide. You know, we see here that, that Esther is in the palace, but yet she doesn't even know what's going on. She doesn't have a clue about what's, what's really going on. And why does the king do this? The king does this because he wants to maintain, he wants to maintain his own perspective uh, of what's going on. He doesn't want to let anybody else in that's going to ruin his day. You know, I don't want to hear about that sad stuff because my day is going pretty well right now, so you can take your sob story someplace else. Right? I mean, that's his perspective on it. That's why I don't, I don't want anybody with grieving sackcloth and ashes. And so 
he guards that. He won't let anybody else in. And sometimes we're like the king, right? Sometimes we're like, well, listen, hey, I'm fine hanging out with you as long as you're happy. As long as there's a party going on, I'm there. But as soon as you start talking about some deep stuff and you stop talking about maybe some hard things you're going through, you start grieving, uh, I'm not really sure if I got the attention span or, oh, hey, by the way, I got some things to do. And we, we find a way to, to excuse ourselves from the situation because we don't want anybody else. We don't want to let anybody else into our life that might, might break where we're at, might open our eyes to a different reality than the one that we're currently experiencing. All right, the Bible talks about in Romans 12, 15, it says rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. And, and as followers of Christ, we need to be a people that we, we open up our lives and we, we don't just simply celebrate when people are celebrating, but we, we grieve and we mourn with people that are grieving and mourning. Are you that kind of friend? Are you that kind of person that you have people in your life that you're willing to open your life up to and you're able to be a listening ear? You're able to care for them? You're, and what this means is it means that you're not just surface level attached, right? To actually grieve with somebody, you have to have emotional attachment to them. And so what it says is that there are people that you care for that you've actually become emotionally attached to to where their sadness brings you sadness. And that's hard. We can't do that for everybody. Right? I mean, we can be sad all the time, but we can do that for some people. And there are some people that God's calling us to do that for us to extend ourselves emotionally, relationally, that we would bring them in and that, that we would feel what they feel, that we would care for what they care for. And that's what it's called to be a church. That's what it means that we are his people together is that this is the place where where we are able to have those relationships where we share and people genuinely care. They mourn, they grieve, they celebrate when we celebrate. Verse three. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, Mordecai is mourned. He goes to the gate. They're like, sorry, you can't really bring that sad stuff in here. You can, you know, have fun mourning out there. And now the, the decree is issued and it goes forth and it's gone forth throughout the whole empire. And all the Jews hear about it, their destruction. And they, they corporately come together and they, they fast. They grieve, they mourn, they put themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And this is such a, a, a hard thing, but also a beautiful thing because they as a nation, they as a people have one way of mourning together. They're unified in their grief and in their brokenness and their cry. And though it's ironic that God's name isn't mentioned here, the author is doing a literary technique, right? He's hoping that by not inserting anything specific that we look intentionally. Because almost in every other place in the Bible, when fasting is mentioned, so is prayer. Except for this, right? And the, the author isn't like, man, I just forgot about prayer. <laughs> Oops, you know, he's doing that intentionally so that we would look for God's activity in the midst of this. And so, why is it that they're fasting? Why is it that they're praying? They're doing this because God will hear. God will see. And that hopefully God will, will intervene and move in the midst of this destruction that's coming their way. Right? It's not just impersonal forces, you know? I mean, why isn't it the first thing they do? Like, hey, let's get a rally. Let's get some people together. Let's go up to the king. He just doesn't understand. He's been deceived. You know, let's get some policies changed. Like, that's not the first thing that they do. 
the first thing that they do is that they fast. The first thing that they do is that they mourn, they grieve. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Joel 2, 4, uh, 2, 12 through 14 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And I think that's interesting, that he will not relent and leave a blessing. Isn't that what the book of Esther talks about? Is it, if you know the whole story, and you know, it's not a surprise how the story ends, but he leaves a blessing. What happens? Mordecai is elevated to second in command. And so not only does God relent from the disaster, but he leaves a blessing behind. Jonah 3, 8 through 10, another example of, an, of a nation repenting and mourning corporately. It says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn to relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I think this is so important because we as a nation have many things that we ought to mourn for, many things that we ought to fast for. And we live in a time where fasting and mourning corporately is almost forgotten. We get sad over things, we get angry about things, but we don't actually get broken and fast over things that we would say, you know what's more important to me? Seeking God's face than eating. You know what's more important to me than saying first I need to change policies? It's going before the Lord. And we see this, that a nation that is divided internally that has no way of processing how to mourn, how to grieve together, how to be united in that front, that it begins to fall apart when it's divided from the inside. We have many things, and we saw it, right? I mean, I think one of the, when, and during 9-11, we, have a, we had a nation that was broken and it grieved together in some ways, but yet in our, in our grieving, did we truly seek the Lord fully? I mean, we have many things right now that, that should break our hearts and that should cause us as, as a people to, to fast, to mourn over. And when, when we think about the rate of abortion that's been going on in our culture, 60 million people, Man, is that not something that should grieve our hearts and should not just lead us to action, absolutely, but should lead us to fast and to pray? When we think about the racial tension that goes on, the brokenness that we experience in our nation's divide, should that not lead us, not, yes, to fight for unity, to fight for reconciliation, but to fast and to pray? When we think about the mass shootings that we see all over our nation, people, young people often, bringing guns and shooting up in the middle of, public places, should that not break our hearts and as a nation lead us to, to mourn, to grieve, to fast, and to pray? And listen, that fasting and praying, it leads us to action, but, but what do we do first? What do we think is truly effective? Listen, I'm not just talking about us, us as American culture, but what about us as a church? Are there things that lead us as a church corporately to fast and to pray? When we think that there's spiritual attack that's going on, does that lead us to say, well, listen, we just, you know, we're, we're here to support you. Does that lead us to fast corporately, to pray together? Because we know that the Lord brings us closer to him, closer to one another when we do that. To fast and pray that the deception that's going out in a lot of other churches, that we would fast and pray that the Lord would bring purity in his people. That he because of a zeal. When we think about the, the lost, those that don't know Christ, do we fast and do we pray that people might come to know Jesus? 
You know, when I think about oftentimes in my life, what, what hinders you from eating, right? When you're so busy, you're so caught up in something. Have you ever done that, right? I mean, you've just been so busy throughout the day and you're like, oh man, I forgot to eat. You know, we'll be so occupied in our job, we'll be so occupied in our hobbies or in our entertainment that we'll forget to eat. But yet, can we not be so occupied with seeking God's face that eating becomes secondary, that eating becomes something that is not as primary? And not only that, but what about individually? Because listen, our nation, our church, they're all made up of individual families, of us as people. And if we as families, if we never fast and we never grieve and we're never broken over anything, then why do we expect our churches and our nation to? And so everything begins with, is there anything that you've, that the Lord's calling you to be broken over? Maybe it's sin in your life or maybe it's a death or maybe it's the brokenness that you see in, in your family or in others around you. And God says, listen, I want to use you I'm not talking about them. I want to use you fast and pray and be broken as I was broken for you that there might be healing, that I might intercede and move. And so I want to challenge you, man. Maybe this next week, man, Thanksgiving might be very evident that you see brokenness in your family. You see brokenness around you. I want to invite you. Ask God to work because he can. God is a big God and he can work. He can save. He can redeem. Fast and pray. Ask God to come and to, and to rescue and to redeem what has been broken. And tonight we have prayer night, so there you go. <laughs> Continuing on, verse four. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in, into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that, it might sh- that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. So, right, there's this back and forth. You know, Esther is saying, she sees Mordecai, he's outside the gate, he's mourning. And he's like, she sends, you know, her servant out and says, clothes, put on some clothes, come up and see me. And he refuses. He says, no, I'm not going to put on clothes. I'm mourning and I'm going to be identified as a Jew. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to hide because this was the most evident, most plain way. I mean, why else would you mourn except you're a Jew and your destruction has just been issued? So he's, he is declaring to everyone, this is who I am. I'm not going to hide behind it. And so basically they play this game of like send the messenger back and forth walkie-talkie style. You know, like, hey, say this, you say this. And so they go back and forth. And what Mordecai reminds Esther is that he says, Esther, remember who you are, right? By this time, Esther's been queen for five years. She's been queen for, for you know, almost five years at this point. And her identity has been hidden for close to six is that she has not known, her, the king doesn't know that she's a Jew. And so she has lived so long in this position where nobody knows who she is that it, it perhaps has gotten easier and easier to relegate her identity as God's people, as one that is called by God to follow him. And so it's become something, something secondary, something that's kind of in the past, was an old part, almost forgotten. And he says, remember your people. Remember where you came from. Remember your heritage. Remember who you really are. Your first and primary identity isn't as a queen. It's as a Jew. It's, it's being with the people of God. 
And he, he says this in a couple ways. He wants her to do two things. First, he wants her to identify with God's people. And the second one is that he wants her to mediate for God's people. So to identify with God's people and to, to mediate. So he, think about this. She's been a Jew for, you know, her whole life, but now she's been a queen for five, you know, and in this process for six years, she's been in the palace and she's hidden her identity to all these people. And Mordecai's telling her, hey, now your identity has been hidden all these times, but now that, you know, today there's been an issue to kill all the Jews. I want you to go and tell them that you're a Jew. Right? I mean, perfect timing. Like, you know, I've been afraid to like share my identity all the other times, but now when it might cost me my life, now's the time to do it. And so he's telling her that, listen, all of your security, all of your comfort, all of your privilege, all of your, everything that you have so valued, that you have so enjoyed, I want you to risk it all. I want you to risk it all. I want you to go and be willing to give everything up. I mean, what if somebody came up to you and said, listen, so I've got a proposition. I want you to be willing to give up your home. I want you to give up your job. I want you to be willing to give up your family. All of these things. You know, I know that those are things that you really hold on to really tightly, but right now I want you to go and I want you to risk all of those things. And you can lose them like that. And, and your life, you know, that too. So to go and risk that right now. But, but he's doing it because he says, listen, you, remember who you are. This is, this is who you are. And so he's calling her to risk all these things. Why? To identify with her people. To say, listen, I, just because I'm a queen, that doesn't mean that I'm not also a Jew. Just because you're in a position, it doesn't mean that you aren't one of God's people, that you aren't his child. And that we can't just say, well, I'm gonna escape these things because I've got a high and lofty position. Isn't this exactly what Moses did? I mean, think about Moses. Moses was chosen, though he was born a Jew, he was adopted into Pharaoh's household and he was taken as a prince of Egypt. And yet he said, listen, it's, he saw his people. He knew he was a Jew. He lived a life of luxury, a life of privilege, a life that most people that were Jews would have given anything for. He lived this life, and, but yet he saw his people being beaten. He saw his people being enslaved. He saw his people being degraded and hurt. And he says, I can't live this life of privilege. I can't live this life of wealth while my people are being treated like this. And so he risked everything. He gave up everything to identify with his people. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 through 27. It says, By faith, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of heaven, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is visible or invisible. And so, we see with Moses, what is explicit in Moses, we see implicitly in Esther is that there was faith, there was a trust, that there was a God behind the scenes that was working out that, and that to be with him was more valuable than to choose the, the treasures and the wealth of this world. That temptation, it, it reaches in every one of our lives where we, there are gonna be times in your life where you have to choose Christ over wealth. You have to choose Christ over comfort. And ultimately, we see this through Jesus, right? I mean, Christ was willing to identify with us. I mean, think about it, what Christ went through, being in, in perfection with his father, and yet he chose to humble himself, be born as an infant. I mean, think about how humbling that is. He had, you know, I mean, he had to change diapers, you know? I mean, like, he humbled himself as an infant, grew up, had to rely upon his parents, and he identified with us. He was poor. He felt suffering, pain, tiredness. I mean, he endured all of these things that he might identify with with us. 
Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And C.S. Lewis, he says, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. You see, Jesus Christ, he became like us, and he identified with us that we might become like him, that we might have right standing with God. And this is the ultimate way. It's the ultimate way that Jesus Christ identified with us is he identified with us through becoming a sin offering for us. You see, you, you and I, we're, we're broken. I mean, if you know yourself at all, you look inside yourself and, and you realize that we are broken people. We're selfish, we're prideful, we're greedy, we, we have lust. You know, we tend to compare ourselves and we feel good about ourselves depending upon who's around us. Well, I'm better than them. And so we naturally begin to compare ourselves and feel better. So we're broken people and he came to heal us. But the only way he could heal us was that he had to bear that brokenness. And so 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, For God made him to be, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ identified with us by becoming a sin offering on our behalf, that we might become like him, pure, holy, and innocent. Now, God calls us to be a people who identify with others. God calls us to be a people that identify with others, that we are called to identify with those that are suffering, with those that are broken, with those that are hurting. He calls us to identify with the poor. Right? You might be in here, you might be fairly well off. Do you identify with those that don't have anything? And what I mean by identify, do you actually have a relationship with them? Do you engage in conversation? Are you able to think about and put yourself in their position? Are you willing to sacrifice what you have in order that you might be with them? Right? That's what it means to identify, is that it means to risk what you have in order that you might be with those people. Do we identify with the poor? Do, I, do we identify with the marginalized? Right? Whether it's those in school, whether it's work, whether it's those that are in our, our community, that they are pushed to the side. They are taken for granted. People, when they walk by, they don't want to engage in conversation. They don't want to build a relationship with them. Do we identify with the marginalized? Do we go out of our way to extend relationship and love and care? What about those that are broken with sin? Right? Those that we look at and we're like, they're a mess. They're struggling with all of these addictions. They're in the midst of this, and we just look at it and we're like, that is complicated. Do we identify with them? Do we realize that Christ identified us when we were a hot mess? We we're broken? And he says, thank the Lord, man. Thank the Lord that he didn't do that to us. Right? He wasn't like, whoo, that's a lot. Good luck with it. You know, instead he stepped in. He said, no, I see that, and, and I, I'm going to join you in it. Now listen, we can't do this for everybody, but God is calling us to do this for some people. God is calling us to step into the mess and the brokenness and say, I want to join you in that. Not that I can fix it, not that I can solve it, but I want to join you in that because I love you and I believe that Christ can. I believe that Christ can. He calls us to identify with him. What about the grieving? When those that, there are those that are grieving over loss, do we step in and do we grieve with them? Do we mourn as they're mourning, listen as they just need a process? God calls us to be a people that identify with others. The second thing that he calls Esther to do is that he calls Esther to be a mediator. Right? What, is it, what in the world does mediate mean? It means to go in, in between two parties that are really angry at each other and try to bring resolution. Right? Try to bring uh, healing and you know, out of conflict to bring peace, out of anger to bring harmony. You know, and so this is what he's calling Esther to do. Is he says, listen, the king wants to kill everybody. You know, he wants to kill all the Jews. Now, you and you alone can be this mediator. You can go because, why? There's a unique thing that Esther's able to do. She is a dual identity, right? She is a queen 
but she's also a Jew. And because of her, her dual identity, she can stand for both parties. She can go before the king because she has that relationship with him, but she can also stand for the Jews because that is who she is. And because of her dual identity, she's able to represent the king to the Jews, and she's able to represent the Jews to the king. And so she's called to go and to make these requests on behalf of the king and immediate. And this is what Christ has done for us. This shows us Jesus because we need a mediator before God. You know, sometimes people think, well, listen, I can just talk to God at any time. Listen, if it wasn't for Jesus, you would not have access to God. You would not be able to enter his throne room. You'd not be able to pray to him to seek him. Christ is our mediator. He is the one that brings us before God. He is the one that allows us to have access to God. Why? Is it because he became human. The incarnation is so vital. He became man that he might represent us fully before God. And he was fully God that he might represent God to us. He is both fully man and fully God at the same time. And therefore, he is our mediator. We see this in... No, I didn't put a verse there, sorry. So, actually I did. There we go. 1 Timothy 5, uh, 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus was a ransom for all. He came that we might... We may be back, brought back to God. You see, Ephesians 2, it says that you and I, we're not just apathetic against God, but we're actually under his wrath outside of Jesus. That brokenness that we do, it, that sinfulness, that selfishness, it's, it creates a debt between us and God. Right? If I came into your house and I was like, oh, great house. You know, um, I, uh, I don't like your TV though, and I just decided I wanted to break your TV. Be like, whoa, what are you doing, bro? Like, hey, that's my TV. You can't just break it. Somebody's gonna have to pay for it. I mean, somebody's gonna have to pay for the TV. Either I pay for the TV or you pay for the TV. Somebody's gonna have to pay for the TV, though. I mean, or else it's just gonna stay broken, but that's not gonna work. I mean, you need a TV. So, uh, so somebody's gonna have to pay for the TV. It's, it creates a debt, but yet we walk into God's world, the world that he's created, and we treat his, his creation as we see fit. We treat people as objects. We are selfish. We're greedy. We, we do these things, and then we think, whatever. doesn't really matter. We don't think that we've entered into God's house and we treat his possessions like that, and we don't think that we owe him? We don't think that creates any debt against God? It does. And it says that we are under his wrath, but here's the thing. Jesus steps up, and he says, listen, that's too big of a price for you. You don't have big enough pockets to pay for the things that you've broken, and so I'll pay for it. I'll step up, and I will pay the debt that you owe if you will but trust me to pay for it. And that's what Jesus has done. He's come and he's mediated this reconciliation between us and God so that God's wrath will be placed upon Christ and his grace would be shown to us. His grace would be shown to us. And so if you're here and you've not trusted in Christ, you've not put your full faith and confidence in Christ, listen, let me, let me be very clear with you. That debt that you owe, it will be paid. You will either stand before God, it will be paid, but Christ longs that you would trust him and that he would pay it for you. That he would pay it for you. Trust in Christ. Put your confidence in him that you might receive his grace and his forgiveness. So, continuing on. Verse 9, it says, And Hethak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And when Mordecai, and, and then Esther spoke to Hethak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. 
But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. So she says, listen, that's great, Mordecai. I realize I'm a Jew. I should come before the king and I should make this request, right? I mean, I'm the queen. She says, you don't understand though. You're not here. I haven't seen the king in a while. In 30 days, that's a whole month. And what, listen, the king doesn't sleep alone, right? I mean, the king's not just like sitting there twiddling his thumbs thinking, you know, the king has a harem. And so what that means is the king is sleeping with everybody else besides Esther. The king is having every other woman in his bed except for Esther. And so Esther is saying, listen, this doesn't bode well for me, right? I mean, what happened to the last queen? Like the king told the last queen that, you know, you better come and parade your stuff before my group of guys or else I'm gonna kick you out. And she says, not only am I coming to the king when he doesn't call me and he probably doesn't seem to be in the best mood right now because he's got all these other girls around him. And not only am I doing that, but I'm coming to him and I'm saying, oh, I know that you've known me for six years, but I've got a really big secret that I need to tell you. <laughs> I'm actually a Jew. <laughs> doesn't really, she's like, none of these things seem to be boding in my favor. And so she is putting herself at the whim of a, an emotionally unstable king. And it says that, that the only, there was one law that if anybody came to him except that, that was given the golden scepter, they would die. And so she's saying, do you see all these circumstances? They don't look really good for me. And you want me to go and you want me to put my life on the line with this emotionally unstable king that kicked out a queen because she wouldn't strut her stuff before a group of men? Like that doesn't seem like the best bet in my book. So, he comes on in verse 12 and he says, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So Mordecai says, that's great. You can hide. You can act as if nothing happened, that you don't really know anything. You can continue on playing queen as if you're not a Jew. But realize one thing. This will come to your house too. You will not escape. You can't run from this. You can't hide from this. Persecution, it's going to come to you as well. It's going to find you out. And this is true for us as well. We can try as much as we want to escape, to run away from pain, to run away from trials, to run away from persecution. We know that it's going to come. It's going to come. Suffering, pain, and even if you're a Christian persecution, if you truly are following Jesus, it's going to come in your life. It's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. And it's a matter of how do you respond to it. How do you respond to when pain and when suffering, when persecution comes your way? Do you run away from it? Do you hide from it? Because ultimately, you're going to be found out and it's going to be far worse. But what Mordecai says is he says, don't hide from it, face it. Face it. Don't be afraid of it. Instead, turn and face it and trust and in faith that God has a plan and purpose behind it. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Man, this verse is so good. This is the theme verse of the whole book. And what it's saying here is that, first thing is it shows that Mordecai doesn't believe that all this stuff is just kind of like random chance, that history is just, in, you know, uh, rolling out in these, uh, in these random order of events. He thinks that this is purposeful, that there's a God, a king that is behind the scenes that is orchestrating and working behind everything that happens. Do you approach your, your events in life like that? Thinking that God has a, a purpose in this. God has a reason that, he, that this is happening. And I, I'm gonna 
I'm going to approach this with trust that there's a God that is providentially ordering the, the events in this world, even if it doesn't look like it. He's providentially ordering the events in this world to work out for his glory and for our good. So he says, listen, Esther, God's going to save. God will save his people. The question is, are you going to be a part of the problem? Or are you going to be one that helps fix the problem? Are you going to step up and put trust in God and be an agent of God's work? Or are you going to try to hide and, and suppress God's work through you? And God asks that question to each of us. He wants to use us to further his work in this world of preaching the gospel to others, of being agents of reconciliation. And he says, listen, God's going to save. God is going to work in this world. He's going to rescue and redeem. The question is, are we going to join him in his work? Are we going to, to say, God, use me. I, I want to be used. Are we going to, are we going to hide? The second thing is that God puts us in our positions for a purpose, right? Mordecai says, listen, Esther, do you not think that this was just all an accident? That you weren't put as queen for this very purpose, that you, you weren't sovereignly orchestrated to, to wind up as queen for this reason, to be an agent of salvation for God and saving the Jews. Acts 17, 26 through 27 talks about this very same thing for us. It says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Do you think it's just on accident, it's just random chance that you live where you live, that you work where you work, that you have the family that you do? Do you think that that just kind of happened? Do you not think that that was appointed for you? That God had sovereignly provided your position and your influence and your place? Why? For his purpose. For such a time as, as this. I remember when we first moved into our house and the Lord very clearly told me that, that that wasn't just an accident, that he intentionally put me to live there and put the people to live around me for his glory, that they might come to know him. Man, and see that you are in the school you're at, you are where you live for his glory and to advance his purposes. It's not just an accident. And we can, that forces us, when we really believe that, it forces us to not live for ourselves. It means that we can't, we can't use the influence, we can't use the situation just for our comfort or for our, you know, our luxury, but it forces us to live for God because he has a purpose. He has a purpose in it. And not only this, but everything that you have, everything you have is a gift of God's grace. What he's saying to Esther is, Esther, you didn't become queen simply because you were beautiful. There are lots of other beautiful girls that could have become queen. You didn't just become a queen because of these, you know, like your submissive character qualities. Like you became a queen because God gave that to you. And do you not think that everything you have in your life is a gift of grace? And I, I talk to people all the time and they're like, well, I worked and I got myself here. I pulled myself up on my bootstraps. You know, I, I did this and I did that. Listen, who gave you your work ethic? Who gave you the desire? Who gave you the ability? Why is it that you don't have a, a disease that you can't work? I mean, right, who gave you any of these things? You think that it's just your sovereign will and you really did. Do you not think that God's grace gave you everything, the breath that you have, the family that you have, the time frame that you even live in? I mean, you were born 300 years ago, you know, in, in Asia, you, you wouldn't have any of these things. But yet, all, everything that you have is a gift of grace. And if we approach that, it humbles us. It strips the pride right out of us and we can no longer use our position or our privilege for ourselves, but we use it for Christ. The next thing we see is that 
Esther is called queen 13 out of the 14 times in this book after this moment. And what this means, what this means is that greatness is not a title that's given. It's something that is demonstrated in giving your life up for others. Right? I mean, she is, before this, she's only called queen once. But after this, it's because she has demonstrated the character of a queen by doing this is that her greatness is displayed not in saying, I'm going to selfishly keep my life, but I am willing to give my life for the sake of my people. I'm willing to risk my life for others. Do you realize that your greatness, your greatness in life, it's not going to be found in the position that you reach, whether it's your job or your title or your education, your finances. Your greatness in life is going to be demonstrated in how much you've given your life for the sake of others and how much you've decreased that Christ might increase. That is a stature of greatness in the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Luke 17, 33, whoever would seek to save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Another thing that we see here is that God uses all kinds of positions for his purpose. Notice Esther wasn't teaching the Bible. Like she wasn't preaching uh, she probably never had hosted a Bible study, you know, in her life. I mean, so she wasn't a, a, a full-time vocational pastor or minister. And yet, God used her greatly to save his people. I mean, same thing is that you have Ray Bakke. He wrote a book called A Theology as Big of the City. And he talks about that there are three main characters that God uses in the exile to, to bring back his people. He used uh, Ezra who Ezra was a teacher of the law, right? He uses uh, Nehemiah, who Nehemiah is basically an urban developer. He's, you know, he's someone that comes and kind of builds and, and sets up things. And then he uses Esther. Esther, who is someone who intercedes in the secular court, who intercedes in the king. And he uses all three of these characters for his, his purpose of his redeeming his people in exile. And so what does this mean? It means that every single job is vocational ministry, Right, that whether you're a teacher, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a nurse, whatever job it is that God has called you to, that is His means of bringing His world back into order. Right? Because what has sin done? Sin done? Sin has broken our relationship with God. And how is that healed? That's healed partly by what I'm doing, by proclaiming the word, by proclaiming the gospel, and people responding in faith. It's, it's done by what we do in living out our faith before other people. But sin has not just broken our relationship with God; it's broken our relationship with other people. I mean, right, we experience that oftentimes with our family. You know, all it takes is, you know, a week in the house and you see, you know, we, we're broken people. And so how does that heal? How does our relationship heal with other people? Be it oftentimes what teachers do, what, you know, what our, whether our elementary or our high school teachers, whether it's what counselors do. I mean, our relationships with others need to be healed. What about our, our sin has broken our relationship with creation? We end up using creation rather than stewarding it. And so how is that meant to be healed? It's, it's intended to help be healed by, by our farmers, by our grocers, by all these things. They're intended to help these things flourish and care for them. And so all these jobs are important, but the thing is, is that do we see them as that? Do we see our positions as ways to advance his kingdom rather than our own? He wants to use our vocations for his glory and for his purposes in this world and not simply for ourselves. And this, let me just tell a quick story. So uh, many of you guys have heard of William Wilberforce, Right? Well, who, who here's heard of William Wilberforce? Some of you? Okay, so William Wilberforce uh, is in the 18th, 19th century, and uh, he is from Britain, and he was used to help end slave, slavery in Britain. And 
William Wilberforce came to Christ at, you know, when he was in his early 20s. He was raised up in a, in a God-fearing home, but he didn't accept Christ. He didn't truly become a follower of Christ until his early 20s. And by that time, he was already in parliament, right? He was already in politics. And he got serious about his faith. He said, I want to follow you, Christ. I want to follow you fully. And so he contemplated leaving politics for ministry, right? He thought about, well, I should just leave. I should leave politics. I should leave this, this realm. And I should go into vocational ministry. This is what people that are really serious about Jesus do. And so he met with a prime minister, William Penn. And they were discussing back and forth. And William Penn told him, he says, listen, God's going to raise somebody up and they're going to be used to end slavery. But maybe God wants to use you for this Wilberforce. Maybe he has called you to this very thing for such a time as this. And that he doesn't want you to leave your position of influence, but he wants you to steward your position of influence for his glory. He wants to use it for the freedom of, of millions of people. And so too, I mean, God, God wants to use every single one of us. And if we would change our perspective and see that what you've been called to is ministry and God wants to use it God wants to use it. Let's continue on. Last thing. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my, uh, on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. It's a long time. Uh, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And the last thing we see is, is Esther's courage. She says, listen, I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to put my life on the line to risk everything. And so what we, what we should see here is that Esther's not really as much of an example as she is a signpost. Right? Esther's not really intended to be an example for us to follow because there's a lot of things that Esther does that we shouldn't follow. <laughs> Uh, but she's intended to be a signpost that points to something greater, right? That when we look at Esther, it should remind us of Jesus. It should point us to, to Christ. How? Well, just as Esther had to risk her, her place in the palace, Jesus left his heavenly home. He, he left his perfect unity with the, the Father and the Spirit on the cross for us. He identified with us and mediated just as Esther was called to identify with her people and become a mediator for her people. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. She's willing to die. But here's the thing, Jesus actually perished. He actually gave up his life, his blood for, for you. Not just for us, but, but for you. He gave that up. Jesus affected a greater victory than Esther, right? While Esther physically saved her people, Jesus came and he saved us that we might be eternally brought to, with, to be with him, that we might have full fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit forever. And so he's, he's brought about a far greater victory than what Esther has done. Now, what this means is that we can choose at, at the end of this chapter, I hope that you see that you have been given, whether you think so or not, you've been given a place of a position that you can use to influence, whether it's in your friendships, whether it's in your home. And so my challenge is, would you steward those positions, those places, those influences that you have for his kingdom rather than your own? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, we can see in Esther and ultimately we see through Jesus uh, that your kingdom is, uh, is going to come on earth as it is in heaven, that you are going to, uh, 
you're going to bring it. Help us to be a part of your plan. Help us to join in the work that you're doing in this world, God. That we wouldn't just hide, that we wouldn't just run away from it, that we wouldn't just be stuck in our own plans, our own comfort, our own privilege. But instead, we would say that what is more valuable, what is more valuable is, is your kingdom, is seeing people come to know you. And so help us, Holy Spirit. We love you. Sing your prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.